the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. This is it, the Thursday, March 5th, 2020 edition of Capital Ideas. I'm glad you found it. Capital Ideas is the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives stop what they're doing for a few minutes to sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. Today's idea is election security and integrity. Given what's gone on and is still going on in the world, that's about as important an idea as it's possible to talk about in a representative democracy like ours. It's our good fortune that Representative Gail Tarleton happens to be a member of the State House because she's probably thought about this more than anyone you know, and her thinking, as you'll see, is pretty sharp. I'll do this quickly. Gail comes to Olympia from Seattle's 36th Legislative District, which is home to some of the most iconic parts of the Emerald City. She's got the Hiram Chittenden Locks, Golden Gardens Park, Ballard, Fisherman's Terminal, Belltown, the Space Needle, and the Tom Hanks Floating Home and Sleepless in Seattle, 36th District. Oh, and Fraser's High Rise, that too. We managed to record this earlier today during a lull in debate on the House floor, and you can hear it now. Welcome, Representative Gail Tarleton. It's a real pleasure to see you here for the first time on Capital Ideas. Thanks for having me, Dan. We're gathered here today to talk about something that's pretty timely. Uh, Today is March 5th of 2020, and next Tuesday is the presidential primary here in Washington State. It'll be the first time in in a while that uh, Washington voters have cast their votes, and it's a big deal. One of the things that you are focused on like a laser beam this session has been election security. And that's what I want to get you to talk about today. Tell me what specific bills you're working on and why. The primary is March 10th. And we want everyone to know that when they cast their vote, regardless of which party you vote for, your vote is going to count. Dan, I've been thinking about this day and this year uh, since late 2016, when our state was alerted by the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and the entire uh, U.S. intelligence community, that we were one of the states that had been targeted for foreign interference to disrupt our presidential elections in 2016. Late that year, after the elections had been certified and the dust had started to settle before the next thing that happened, I drafted a letter on behalf of my colleagues in the House and the Senate, a bipartisan letter to Senators Murray and Cantwell, and asked them to please start analyzing what states were subject to potential interference, which digital infrastructure could have possibly been disrupted. How do we know that when we get around to having our elections and local elections in 2017, the statewide elections and congressional elections in 2018, that we actually were addressing the risks from cyber attacks, from any other kinds of interference from foreign powers or domestic groups that might want to undermine our most fundamental right? That is our right to vote. We sent a letter 
federal government started investigating different aspects of foreign interference in U.S. elections. In 2018, I introduced an election security breaches bill. That bill was introduced in 2018, 2019, and 2020. And last night at about 1130, I believe, the state Senate passed that bill off the Senate floor with a unanimous vote that passed off the House floor several weeks ago to say we are going to define a foreign entity so that if we have foreign interference in our elections, we will know who we have to prosecute. It also defines the way in which our local elections officials, state elections officials, and federal partners will coordinate any kind of response to, management through, a potential disruption, and recovery to make sure that our election systems are not open to foreign or domestic interference and that we can trust the results of the elections when they are reported to us by our state government. This is work that I have been doing for a long time in my life to make sure that we are protected against any kind of disruption or intrusion. This particular bill makes sure that our people know that when they vote, their vote is going to be counted as they cast it. Let me ask what might sound like a dumb question. There are no dumb questions, Dan. (laughs) Well, wait till you hear some of mine. Uh, This is a a totally a vote-by-mail state. I I would imagine that the number of actual voting machines is very limited, probably for people living with disabilities, maybe, and they have to go to a particular place to Mm -hmm. do that. Given that this is a state where everybody uses a paper ballot, How do people play with our system? It's a great question because a lot of people don't actually know what it means to be vulnerable to cyber attacks. I like to tell people this is not my great-grandmother's or great-grandfather's elections system anymore. Our, Our election systems are actually not just voting machines that we used to have at the polls and that most other states actually have at the polls. Our voting systems are the machines that are in the operations of our local elections officials. They run on the ground the elections for our state. And there are voting machines, there's hardware, there's software. There are digital networks where all of the data are being collected, just like we collect stuff off of our phones and it goes into the cloud and then we retrieve it off of our phones. All of the data are riding in these digital networks on the internet. And so when the ballots come in to our local elections offices, and we have 39 counties and 39 auditors or local elections officials, and their teams of people are the people on the ground who are the ones who are going to detect whether something is not going right in the system. And what they can't do is once the data are in the networks, they don't know exactly what is happening to it. It might be encrypted, it's moving through the digital clouds, it's landing in the Secretary of State's office here in the Capitol, and the vulnerability in any kind of network, whether it's a elections network or a company's internal business operations network or a bank's financial network, the vulnerabilities are in really two places. They are in the place where the data are being entered because the system is open 
to people being able to enter it. And then the, the data are vulnerable when they are stored in databases. So we hear a lot about data breaches, Dan, and I have been the victim of a data breach of my personal security. I was an intelligence analyst in the Pentagon for nearly 10 years. About five years ago, long after I had left that job where I had top level security clearances, my husband and I, who my husband also had that background, we were notified by the Department of Defense that all of our personal data had been breached and they did not know who got a hold of it. And when you get a security clearance, Dan, you have to hand over your financial data, your health data, all of your educational records, all of your personal records of not only you, but your immediate family members. We have never actually known what data were breached, which databases they came out of. But once data is being entered into the system and once it is being stored in databases, that's when things happen in that place called the dark web a lot of people have read about. I want to make sure people understand that we have experts looking at the capacity of our data to be safe from disruption. And it's not to be a fear monger. This is to be realistic. We prepare for emergencies in this state, as you know, Dan. We do exercises and training of all of our emergency managers to deal with a potential earthquake or a response to a landslide or the response to a coronavirus. What we don't do is help our trained officials who are our elections officials at the local level. We don't help them train and exercise together with state officials and federal partners on what a potential cybersecurity incident might look like on our election systems. And that is something we must start doing. And that is something that under this election security breaches legislation, we will have the ability to start working that into the whole just the whole day-to-day -day operations of how we keep our elections safe. This sounds like we're bringing our elections into the 21st century. Great way of putting it. Putting up firewalls, putting up systems to detect breaches, checking data at every step along the way yes. as those data make their way toward that database. Right. A very important thing you just said, you, you are checking your work every step along the way, and that's where the local officials on the ground and their teams are like the canary in the coal mine. They're the early warning detectors and indicators that something has to be checked. Maybe there's a problem in scanning our signatures on our ballots. Maybe there's a problem in the vote count matching between the paper ballot and then what is showing up in the system. There's something also called risk-limiting audits where what you will do after the fact is go back and validate that how you process the ballot corresponded with the signature on the ballot. And then the voting ID, not the person's name, but the voting ID. And to make sure there was no tampering with the ballot, to make sure that there were no things that struck the elections officials as out of the ordinary. Uh, these are professionals. They know their job. And so they are the ones who need to be the people who we say, let's bring you all together. I have done this my whole career, and we do what's called a red teaming. After the fact, when things have, you know, you have gotten all the information together, you take a look at what happened in one county. You 
identify whether that happened in, the, in another county or whether some different variation on a similar problem might have surfaced so that the teams of auditors can learn from each other about how to identify potential risks within their own operations and to make sure that they're learning, right? So they can bring, maybe they have some new people on their team. Uh, people, just like every other workforce that I think I've been a part of, uh, people retire on a fairly regular basis. You know, Dan, that occasionally happens in life. Some people who are new actually have different kinds of skills and they might be more prepared to, to deal with the technology issues that we might be facing. But they don't know the process. They don't know the system. They don't know how to connect with people in the system who can help them deal with with disruptions or things that are just not quite working right. Um, and th this is all to say this. We have terrific capacity in this state to make sure that whenever we are using any kind of digital infrastructure, there are unending numbers of expert resources we can draw on. We have one of the top cybersecurity battalions in the country with our National Guard. We help set up Cyber Command for the U.S. government. These experts are deployed all over the world as well as in our state and country to tackle some of the most difficult cybersecurity breaches that are occurring. And so it's not that we are without experts. It is that we need to know how to get the experts working on the problem at exactly the moment that we need to. And this requires people planning, preparing, talking to each other as a regular deal instead of after the crisis has started. And so um, this, this bill is one thing that's important, but there was another bill of mine, really important to the local auditors and elections officials, really important to the state, Dan, we passed a bill that for the first time, the state will actually fund the cost of state and federal elections and refund the cost to the local auditors. We have always put that burden on the local auditors' backs. And it never occurred to me that we were doing that until I was told by an auditor this past year, because they were focused on my election security breaches bill. And I said to them, what, what are some of the things that are making it impossible for you to get training and do exercising and hire the right people. And one of the things they said, of course, is money. And I'm the finance chair, so I have a pretty good understanding of money. And I said to them, what is it that we aren't doing today that we could be doing? And the answer was, fund the state and federal elections. We ask for reimbursement of costs based on number of registered voters and and if you can do that and add a little bit more money for voter education and awareness, we can help you expand the number of people who actually know how to vote in this state, who actually know how to access the ballot, who know about ballot boxes, who know about free postage. We have passed all of these laws, Dan, since 2018 in this legislature to expand voter participation. And we want those those laws to work. We want them actually to translate into the four and a half million people who are eligible to vote in this state to actually register to vote and even better, turn out and vote. And so helping the local auditors reach those new voters with all of these new people moving into the state, reaching young voters who are going to pre-register to vote at age 16 and 17 because we gave them that right, these are the people who need to know that 
when an election is happening, this is how you make sure you get to participate and exercise your right to vote. And uh, so that piece of legislation passed off the Senate last night with only a couple of no votes. Uh, it's on its way to the governor's desk along with the election security breaches bill. And I think we're on a path to transform our elections and the way we conduct them and the commitment we have to having as broad participation in our elections as possible. I think we're on the right path. Let me do something that is always fun for me, which is to play the devil's advocate for a minute here. Great. In several states, there have been some really transparent attempts to limit the number of people who vote. Oh, yeah. Uh, to influence elections by keeping out certain cohorts that might be perceived as likely to vote a given way. Up here, what we're trying to do is expand it to where every truly eligible voter has the right and the ability to cast a vote. On the question of election security, do you feel comfortable that along with these attempts to broaden access to the polls, that there have been effective efforts to make sure that we're really broadening this to people who really are qualified to vote? This is the essential tension of moving into a digital, mobile, technology-driven way of voting when the systems and the people are not accustomed to using new technology that has actually been tested and verified by independent bodies, preferably public entities, and instead are being used by people who are purchasing equipment from private technology producers and manufacturers. And, you know, Dan, I've been doing a lot of research on this issue. One of the reasons why mobile voting is not secure is that there is literally no standard for production of the mobile technologies. So we had the problem in Iowa. We all saw it. We had a potential risk in King Conservation District voting uh, last month or maybe it was the beginning of this month, I'm losing track of some time here in Olympia. In Los Angeles County, they experimented with a fantastic model of vote where you are, you don't have to vote in your neighborhood precinct, and they had new a whole new system that the public developed, the county developed. The voting machines broke down, they were laptop based, the screens didn't work, they had lines out the door and down the street all night on uh, Super Tuesday, election night. Because it was a new system, they hadn't had a chance to test the bugs sufficiently. Uh, it, was, it was to make voting accessible to where people are, but there were no standards to build them to. And there was no clear way to ensure that when you cast your vote, the system operated appropriately and it wasn't disrupted and the vote cast was actually the vote that you cast. I have an image here of say it's 2024 instead of 2020. We've wasted a lot of time. We had a lot of ideas. We had a lot of opportunities right after 2016 elections to start examining the whole system of voting and access, and we didn't do it nationally and in most states. And we really didn't even do it here in Washington state. We took the steps to expand voting opportunities, registration, making sure people knew about it. But what we didn't do is sit down and say, how are we going to make sure that all of these legal ways of getting access to the ballot actually translate into 
eligible voters registering to vote, registered voters turning out to vote because they know how to use our voting systems and processes. And we are now at a, at a place, Dan, where I think what we need to be doing is saying, in 2024, the world is going to be operating on mobile technology. So let's get to work. Let's make those systems secure. Let's have them tested at a place like the top cybersecurity center in the country is right here in Richland, Washington, at the Pacific Northwest National Lab. Set up a test facility there, just like the country did after the 9-11 attacks, where we set up a test facility in Richland. We had standards for the performance of container security uh, scanners for nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. And I happen to know a lot about this because the company that I was with at that time was manufacturing some of those scanners. But every single company that was doing that had to have them tested at a national laboratory in order to ensure not only that they were safe and secure for people to use, but they met certain standards of performance, that they didn't have high error rates, that when you had a detection of a potential threat to a, a seaport or an airport, that it actually was real and that you didn't have false positives. And so this is what we need to do for future technology. And I believe that the combination of raising awareness about our right to vote as well as the risks to vote will change the way we start thinking about, well, how do we make sure the technology works for us so that it is expanding our access to our right to vote? Uh, that's what I've been doing for a long time in my career, and I think this state is poised to be on the leading edge of doing that for the country. Gail, this has been fascinating. I know that about 97 of your colleagues are probably gathering to begin voting downstairs. Yes, they are on a very important bill. And so I need to let you go. But before I do, I want to say this. I know that your bill just passed last night. Yeah. The presidential primary is in five days. Obviously, this is going to have no effect on that. Do you feel comfortable about the security of the upcoming election that will be taking place in November. I do. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm thrilled that this uh, election security breaches legislation passed last night, it will get to the governor's desk. It will be signed into law. I believe it will be effective as of July 1st. And that will give our auditors about July, August, they conduct the primary uh, for the state races. And July, August, September, October, and I count on my fingers right now because we haven't had much sleep in the last few days. Um, it will give them four to five months to work out some of the protocols for who they will be coordinating with, which counties will be working with each other, how to deploy cybersecurity units if we need to. Everything about preparation is about managing risk. And you know, Dan, this state does this great. We know how to do this. We, we are an emergency planning, management, response, recovery kind of place. So I want every voter to know that the primary election is a great way to start practicing the right to vote. Then there will be the August election where you get to do it again. And then there will be the general election in November, and everyone will know the way it's supposed to work and get their vote counted. So I'm looking forward to the next eight months of making that happen. Representative Gail Tarleton of the 36th Legislative District in Seattle, Washington, <laughs> the Emerald City. I appreciate you coming here and spending a few minutes to talk about something this important. Now you should go downstairs and begin 
legislating. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. Gail knows her stuff, and I'm glad you stuck around for that. I encourage you to subscribe to Capital Ideas at housedemocrats.wa.gov or on your favorite podcast platform. And here's why. This is your state government. What happens here is important for a lot of reasons, and the more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you, for your family, for your business, and for all of us. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening.